You're listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with the host Jack Barsu-Mellish. And joining us today is Dr. Roham Alvandi. He is Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics. He's also author of two books. The first, Nixon, Kissinger and the Shah, was selected by the Financial Times as one of the best history books of 2014. He looks at the close relationship built between the free statesmen and the role the Shah played in the Cold War. He is also the editor and author of The Age of Aryamir, Late Pahlavi Iran and Its Global Entanglements, which looks further at the ideology of the Shah and the Shah's efforts to present Iran as one of the great civilizations of history. Today in the first half of the show we're going to sit down and discuss the Shah of Iran, his domestic and foreign policy during the Cold War, and how we can better understand Iran before the 1979 revolution. In the second half of the show we'll talk to Roham about what it's like doing historic research on Iran, and the Cold War more generally, how we got its start, and future research we should be looking out for on the subject. So let's start with the title of your first book, Nixon, Kissinger and the Shah, because if there was one figure that I would associate closely with US foreign policy during the Cold War, it would be the Shah. But how did his relationship change over the period of his rule from 53 to 79? It changed dramatically because, uh, well, I think uh, there is a kind of image of the Shah in um, Cold War historiography that's really fixed in 1953 with the, the coup that was backed by um, Britain and the United States um, during the Eisenhower administration and the Churchill government. Um, and it's, it's a sort of image of the Shah as this weak sort of supplicant uh, and at best as a sort of client of the United States. And um, the relationship, uh, that, that might well have been the case in 1953, but it evolved considerably throughout the 1960s and 1970s, um, as Iran's position changed, as Iran's economy changed, as its military power changed, uh, as the, uh, the global Cold War changed. Um, so uh, I guess what I was partly trying to do in the book is to kind of show that evolution over time. Why was it that Iran ended up becoming such a heavy feature of US foreign policy throughout the 60s and the 70s after the coup as the Iranian regime developed? Well, I think in, you know, in the 1940s and the 1950s, um, Iran was a kind of liability for the Americans in the Cold War. You know, it was, a, it was, a, it was essentially just a buffer between the Soviet Union and the Persian Gulf. Um, and it was the front line of, of, of the Cold War. So the, the part of what was called the Northern Tier, um, stretching from Turkey through Iran into Afghanistan. Um, and uh, that was kind of the role that Iran had traditionally played in great power politics, you know, really since the 19th, 18th, even 19th century during the Great Game uh, as a sort of buffer between empires. But after the 1953 coup, as uh, the Shah's regime consolidates its power and as Iran's oil income allows it to develop more and more of its own uh, military capabilities, it transforms from uh, an, a liability to what I would argue eventually is a partner for the United States in the Cold War, a country that is actually able to project power beyond its borders and is actually able to contribute to American strategies of containment. Um, so, uh, you know, Iran, for example, Iran had really not had any form of expeditionary force, you know, had not 
projected power beyond its borders since really the 18th century. Um, you, you have to go all the way back to Nadir Shah and his invasion of India, you know. Um, fast forward then through to the 1970s where the Shah is sending Iranian military forces into Oman to help the Sultan of Oman um, defeat a uh, rebellion by um, Soviet-backed and Chinese-backed and East German-backed revolutionary forces. So that's the transformation that takes place in that period of the 1960s and 1970s. So in that way, Iran becomes a key linchpin for maintaining US foreign policy in the Middle East as it develops and as an economic power. Absolutely, absolutely. particularly in the area of Vietnam, you know, in the period when the, the, the US, first the British, of course, retreat east of Suez uh, at the end of the 1960s. Um, and at that time, the United States is mired in Vietnam, is not able to fill that political vacuum. So that creates an opportunity for countries like Iran, these um, sort of middle powers that have their own aspirations, that have their own visions of their, their history and their greatness and so on. Um, it creates an opportunity for them to be able to project power to, to fill that vacuum. Um, often in concert with either the United States or the Soviet Union, in, in Iran's case, the, the United States. Um, and that's really the role that the Shah tries to play. It's very similar to the role of other middle powers in the Cold. If you look, for example, at Ceausescu's Romania, for example, to give you, you know, or, or uh, France under de Gaulle, or, you know, these are all sort of aspiring independent middle powers that want to carve out at least a regional role for themselves um, as, you know, uh, as mid-level powers. And is that largely because of the high level of state capacity in Iran that they end up becoming the key actor? Or is it about ideology? What is it that drives the relationship? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. I, it, I think probably the two are working in tandem with one another. I don't think it's so much one or the other. But... Um, Yes, there is a, you know, um, Iran, again, is not unique, you know, um, yes, the Shah has this ideology, it begins with this idea of the white revolution in the 1960s, so he's going to carry out these whole series of social and economic reforms to, um, in, in, in the vernacular of the time, you know, modernize Iran. Um, uh, but of course, it, it doesn't involve any form of political reform. So there's not a, there's, it's, it's an authoritarian state that is centralizing power, but at the same time trying to um, modernize the economy, rationalize the bureaucracy, um, uh, conduct land reform, give women the right to vote. Um, and so there is a kind of inherent tension and contradiction between those two, those two things. Um, you, you have the emergence of a more and more powerful Iranian middle class domestically and a more and more powerful Iranian state um, both domestically and on the global scene, but the country is not developing its capacity to to be able to have you know, democratic politics, to have a political system where the tensions that are being created by that modernization could be resolved in a peaceful, democratic way. So there, it's a kind of ticking time bomb in a way. Um, uh, so the Shah, in order to in really in order to kind of deal with that contradiction, is co constantly trying to create an ideology to legitimize his regime. Um, and he comes up with this idea of what he calls the great civilization, 
Um, and, you know, many people will sort of remember the images of the big celebrations that he hosted at Persepolis in 1971 to commemorate 2,500 years of Persian monarchy. So what he really did was sort of graft together some elements of third world nationalism, um, what I call Pahlavi third worldism. So some elements of that with um, some notions of Iranian nationalism, particularly Persian, a sort of Persian ethnic identity that harks back to Iran's pre-Islamic past. Um, uh, and also some, you know, co-opting some of the ideas of the left, you know, social reform, economic reform, um, a welfare state, you know, and he sort of grafts all these things together, despite the tensions and contradictions between those two, all those things. He's trying to put it all together into um, some kind of coherent ideology. Um, and it, it, as you say, it plays itself out in foreign policy as well, you know, so in order to project an image of himself as this Iranian nationalist um, and as some sort of embodiment of the idea of third worldism, you know, he's championing himself as the defender of the rights of Iran in the context of oil, right? So pet sort of resource nationalism. It's, it's the Shah defending Iran's rights against the big oil companies. Um, and he plays a really important role in OPEC. Um, he does a similar thing with regard to human rights, right? So he's championing a third world narrative of human rights. Iran hosts the UN Conference on Human Rights in Tehran in 1968. Um, uh, you, you see this in all different areas of Iranian foreign policy, um, this projection of Pahlavi third worldism. Um, so for example, many people don't know that Iran was one of the co-sponsors of the new international economic order in 1974, the NIEO. And it's, you know, you look at the co-sponsors of that re resolution in the United Nations and it's, and it's Iran alongside sort of Algeria and, and Venezuela and, you know, so, um, yeah, that's, that is, there is definitely a connection between foreign policy and ideology, um, and using foreign policy as a way to legitimize, um, the monarchy. I, I think that's a really interesting part of what you tried to do with your book, which is to dig more deeply into the, uh, foundational ideology of the Shah and the ideology that he tries to propagate for his country, because much of the way that we lay think about the Shah is as a as a close ally and client of the United States that is driven by U.S. interests and not willing to break with those. But could you talk a bit about how the Shah attempted to engage in ideas close to things like non-alignment in terms of his ability to balance both the Russians and the U.S. during the Cold War? Well, he he was quite an astute. Uh, sort of reader of international politics. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite counterintuitive because, you know, he made so many mistakes when it came to domestic politics in Iran. And I think the reason for that is because there were no limits on his power domestically, whereas there were very firm limits on his power, you know, in the, glo in the global sphere. And he read those very astutely. And he, he kind of understood, I think, the changes that were taking place at the international level. He sort of understood that Cold War bipolarity had broken down, especially by the 1970s, um, that this era of decolonization had really arrived. 
um, and that he would um, he could benefit from that if that was an opportunity for him and for Iran. Um, and so I think he beginning in the sort of uh, 1960s began to gradually move Iran uh, to a more independent position, putting some distance between himself um, and the United States. Uh, it begins very early. I mean, it really begin. If, you, if you're talking about the era of detente in the Cold War, I mean, the, Shah, the Shah's detente with the Soviets is one of the precursors, really. It's even earlier than European detente. It begins in the late 1950s, um, and in 1962, he normalizes relations with the Soviet Union by promising not to allow American missile bases on Iranian territory. And by the time you get to the end of the 1960s, it's a kind of um, golden age in Soviet-Iranian relations. They're doing all kinds of trade agreements. Iran's even purchasing some weapons from the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, throughout the 1970s, the Shah kind of slowly normalizes relations with almost the entire socialist bloc, uh, including East Germany, including um, uh, communist China. Um, and this is a very sort of deliberate strategy to reposition Iran in the Cold War, to take the wind out of the sails of his domestic opponents on the left. Um, uh, and, uh, and to sort of reposition Iran as a as an independent power, but of course, at the same time, remaining within the Western camp, benefiting from access to um, primarily American weapons uh, to to build up Iran's um, military power. It's a, it, I think the model that he was trying to follow very much was De Gaulle's uh, notion uh, of France's position within the Western camp. And in fact, I, there's, there, I've seen lots of, for example, t telegrams from the British Foreign Office where they call him the de Gaulle of the Middle East, which they don't intend that as a compliment. I mean, <laughs> um, but, uh, but that, I think that was the position he was trying to carve out for himself. And, and I think the reason we miss that, and we don't see that really often when we write about the Shah, when we talk about him, is because we see Iran almost entirely through the prism of American foreign policy. Um, and sort of US foreign policy dominates the historiography of the Cold War so much that we miss it. If you, if you approach Iran from a more global point of view, you, you, you begin to see that the Shah's regime is one of a type that's very common in the 1970s. So for example, if you compare him with um, Mobutu's regime in Zaire, you'll see a lot of similarities. In the same time that the Shah is propounding this ideology of the great civilization and a sort of Iranian renaissance, a Persian renaissance under his rule and an independent foreign policy, Mobutu is doing exactly the same thing in Zaire with his popular movement and what he calls Bantu values. And um, so I think that I, I'm much more interested in these kind of, in this kind of global perspective, as time has gone on, as my research has evolved, I, I, I'm much more interested in looking at Iran and looking at the Middle East and looking at the Cold War from this more global perspective rather than just through the lens of US foreign policy, you know, successes and failures of US foreign policy which really doesn't capture a lot of what is happening.
If we were to discuss the standard history of the Shah, the person I associate most with the Shah in terms of the American officials would be Henry Kissinger. And what was the Shah's relationship with Henry Kissinger? Why was it so close? We know he was, Henry Kissinger was furious at the end of the Shah's regime, at the feeling of betrayal that he wasn't allowed into America to receive medical treatment. Why did they have such a close, it seems, personal relationship as well as political alliance? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating um, relationship. They didn't really know each other until Kissinger came to office. Um, Nixon and the Shah had a much older relationship going back to the Eisenhower administration when Nixon was vice president. Um, but, but Kissinger and the Shah um, really first come into contact with each other um, uh, once Kissinger becomes national security advisor. And, well, I think... The Shah understood very well that Kissinger sees the world in this kind of global, in these global terms, and is not really knowledgeable of or interested in the minutiae of, for example, you know, the politics of the Persian Gulf or um, the Kurds of Iraq or, you know, all these sort of more regional issues that concern the Shah. He, he, the Shah really understood that the way to talk to Kissinger is in Cold War terms. So you take complex problems, simplify them, and then present them in purely Cold War terms. Um, that was the way to talk to Kissinger. And, and he, the Shah did that really well. So for example, he would take a really complex issue like the Kurdish struggle for independence in Northern Iraq and present that to Kissinger as, well, the Kurds are a pro-Soviet force and um, the Ba'athi regime is a pro-Soviet force and they're the enemies of Iran and Iran's an ally of the United States so the US should support Iran in what it's doing in, in Iraq and that worked that worked very well with Kissinger in a way that it hadn't really worked with previous American administrations um, so I think that was the sort of key to their to their relationship um, and uh, and I think also just on a personal level, um, uh, they were quite similar men in a way. I mean, they, they were sort of um, uh, playboys in a sense. They were men who really enjoyed the limelight. Um, they, I think they got on very well um, on a personal level. But I've seen many documents and many sort of uh, the Iranian sources that also uh, show that the Shah really understood Kiss how big Kissinger's ego was. And, um, you know, he does say some pretty disparaging things about him, you know, behind his back. Uh, so, and, and the Shah was not shy also about um, disagreeing with Kissinger and, and also and, and going against his advice. Who is driving Middle Eastern foreign policy during the period of the Shah's reign, if he has that level of influence when discussing things with Henry Kissinger? Is the US driving US foreign policy in the region, or is the Shah a major influencer in explaining the region and therefore determining what the US is doing? Is the tail wagging the dog in this case? I think it is a case of the tail wagging the dog and not just in the Iranian case. I mean, there's, there's other countries too in the region that are having this kind of Israel in particular, you know, um, to some extent the Saudis. Um, but, 
the argument I tried to make in, in, in my book was that there was a kind of rise and fall of this partnership um, that really begins, the, the sort of origins of it are in you know, the early 1970s um, when Nixon comes into office, when Nixon and Kissinger um, basically are trying to extract the United States from Vietnam and are trying to avoid any other commitments in other parts of the third world, which they don't consider really crucial to their foreign policy goals. They're trying to focus on relations with the Soviet Union, relations with China and ending Vietnam. And the last thing they're interested in is um, getting mired in you know, any other sort of local conflicts anywhere. And so that's, that's where the idea of the Nixon doctrine really comes from relying on local partners um, to essentially defend themselves against Soviet-backed forces all over the world. And, and there, there's a kind of slow process in the early 70s as the Shah is trying to convince them that Iran is, this, is the best partner for them in the Persian Gulf region, um, i.e. not the Saudis, Iran, because Iran has this rivalry with Saudi Arabia. The previous administrations had really going off the back of British policy, had tried to balance, had tried to maintain some kind of balance between the Saudis and the Iranians. But the Nixon administration really tilts towards Iran and essentially just gives Iran a blank check um, the and really follows the Shah's advice on most policy issues um, in the region. Uh, he has a huge amount of influence, I mean, tremendous influence in shaping the Nixon doctrine in the Persian Gulf. And my argument is that he's, he's shaping it according to Iranian interests. Um, in the same way that the Israelis are shaping U.S. policy uh, in the Arab-Israeli conflict, according to Israeli interests, it's a similar, it's a similar dynamic, um, and that works very well. And the sort of peak of it is the mid nineteen, you know, the mid nineteen seventies, with the huge increase in oil prices, um, which the Nixon administration essentially acquiesces to. Uh, they're not particularly worried about this massive rise in oil prices because a lot of that petro money is going back into the U.S. economy through arms sales anyway. Um, where it all sort of begins to fall apart is with Watergate um, and the end of the Vietnam War and the kind of collapse of the Cold War consensus in the United States itself. So once Nixon leaves office in 1974, Kissinger is still there still sort of fighting a rearguard action against all these critics of the Nixon-Kissinger grand strategy and detente and, you know, all these enemies of their foreign policy, both on the left and the right, you know, who are coming at them. Um, and so the US-Iran partnership is one of the um, legacies of Nixon. And so it is increasingly coming under attack. It's coming under attack, not just from sort of liberal internationalists, um, who are concerned about human rights, it's also coming under attack even from Republicans, you know, who are, who are worried about the extent to which the US is um, uh, tied into the Shah's regime. They're particularly worried about what would happen if um, the Shah decides to launch some kind of expansionist war in, in the Middle East. Would the US get dragged into another conflict? There's even a wonderful, there's a novel that's written in 1976 by a character called Paul Erdman, who I think was a banker and 
um, was living in Swiss, American banker, and he wrote this novel called The Crash of 79, which is a very prescient title. Um, but it's all about this fantastic scenario where there's going to be a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia that ends up being a nuclear war and the end of the world, you know. Um, so this was the this was the kind of view of the Shah in, in a lot of quarters in the United States. This megalomaniac who's accumulating this huge arsenal of weapons. Well, what does he want all these weapons for, right? So there, there were these kind of worries and concerns that he was driving up oil prices, he's going to get the US mired in some kind of local conflict. And so that, that period of, this, of the late 70s is the period of decline in, in the partnership. And you see it in all kinds of areas. It's the period when American concerns about Iran's nuclear program you know, really come to the surface. Um, these deep worries about what, why, why does the Shah want to build a nuclear program? When they've got so much oil and gas, what do they need nuclear? What do they need electricity generated by nuclear power for? You know? Part of my agenda in that book was to essentially remind people of the complexity of the relationship and all the nuances and fluctuations of the relationship between the US and Iran in the Cold War. That it wasn't this kind of smooth process of you know Iranian a pliant Iranian client acquiescing to whatever Washington wanted. Um, but that rather it was a very tumultuous relationship. And the, the view of the Shah in the 1970s in the, in the United States was not this kind of rosy, positive picture that everyone imagines it was, but that actually there were real concerns, real worries, even antagonisms um, between uh, American officials and Iranians and, and the American public in general uh, about the idea of this rising Iran, this, this Iran that was accumulating more and more power, was driving up oil prices, was accumulating more and more military power, um, that this was a really disconcerting thing for Americans in the 1970s. And it, it even penetrates into sort of American popular culture. Uh, so that's really what I was trying to do. Um, Let's turn to discuss the Shah's domestic policies. And you already brought up the idea of this white revolution, which was a conservative modernization revolution, which I guess would almost be described as Bismarckian if it had succeeded, but ended up fundamentally destabilizing the regime and leading to the Shah's downfall. So what was it about this attempt at a white revolution, this idea of modernization but under an absolute monarchy why did it fail and why did it lead to such destabilization in the country well it's this is heavily debated i mean there's no uh, i can't say that there's sort of consensus amongst historians on this um question um from one point of view you could argue that um the problem with the white revolution was actually that it succeeded that it was a victim of its own success. Um, so uh, that it did actually transform Iranian society in many ways. And that, the, and that those changes that took place, which were quite dramatic and very fast, created tensions and dislocations in Iranian society that couldn't be resolved through the political system. Um, and, that, and, and consequently led to um, revolution. Um, on the other hand, you could argue that the, the impact of the Shah's social and economic reforms, the overall picture was a relatively 
positive one in terms of the standard of living of most Iranians went up in absolute terms, but that in relative terms, there was a massive increase in inequality. And that, 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 diff, that those problems of inequality were what was breeding resentment and opposition to the regime. I think there's probably truth to, there's some truth to both of those arguments. Um, uh, I think where I come down is, I don't think that the white revolution in any way that would have inevitably led to revolution. I think the problem was that um, the social and economic reforms weren't matched with any serious kind of political reform. Um, that the, the, quite the opposite, in fact, um, that in order to deal with the uh, social and economic turmoil that was being created by those reforms, the Shah, Shah's instinct was to clamp down more and more, to be more and more authoritarian in order to hold on. And in fact, that was an idea that was being propagated by some advocates of modernization. So for example, Samuel Huntington famously argued um, in his book, Political Order and Changing Societies, he famously predicted this and he said, actually modernizing regimes like, and he used the Shah of Iran as an example. He said, actually, they will need to be more authoritarian, not less in order to deal with the um, social upheaval that is created by the process of modernization. So uh, it's not a coincidence that I think that those two things went hand in hand. And it's only at the very sort of end of the 1970s that in the face of this global human rights revolution, this massive increase in, of human rights activism, and then an American administration, the Carter administration coming in and advocating for human rights, it's only in the face of that sort of outside pressure that the Shah suddenly changes gears um, and, begin, and begins what he calls a liberalization in 1976, 1977. And that, that's really, that's what I'm sort of working on now is that this sudden shift from having, you know, in 1975, creating a one party state, the Rastakhiz party, the Renaissance party, and suddenly a year later, shifting gears to modernize uh, to liberalization and trying to open up the political space in Iran and sending a signal to the opposition that more dissent will be tolerated. Um, that is really what begins the process, the, the unraveling of the regime. That is really the, the spark that lights the flame of the Iranian revolution. This idea that Iran can turn on a dime in terms of its policies seems to imply a huge amount of capacity to make decisions concentrated just in the Shah himself and the Shah would like to have his propaganda say that he was second Cyrus the Great, the becoming of Cyrus the Great but how did the Shah actually rule? Were there important ministers that we should know about as people who were interested in the Cold War, other figures in his government because so much focus is just put purely on the Shah but who are the individuals that surround him that are influencing his thought other than people outside of the country? Yeah I think it depends in which policy area we're talking about but um, on the issues that he understood well and that were very sensitive to, to his political survival so things like foreign policy, um, the command of the armed forces, um, the security services, Savak, 
you know, these, in these areas, he was micromanaging everything. Uh, I, I, even I didn't really appreciate the extent to which he was micromanaging things. I, I, I remember going through the archives of Adishir Zahidi, who was his um, foreign minister and then his ambassador to the United States and also his son-in-law for a period of time. And, I, and in his archives, which were at the Hoover Institute, you, he kept all of the correspondence that he had with the Shah when he was ambassador in Washington. And, um, and, and, and his reports that were sent back to Tehran were all handwritten because he didn't want even the typists to, to, to be able to read them and they'd be sealed and they'd go to Tehran and they'd be opened at the court and the Shah would read them and make notes and in the margins and then they'd be sealed again and sent back to Washington. And I was just amazed at the minutia of things that were sent to him. I mean, you know, a, a 15 year old American teenager writes a letter to the ambassador about some, she'd seen the Shah on television. This would be sent to Tehran. You know, um, the list of people who attended a dinner at the Iranian embassy, you know, where they sat and what the menu was for dinner, you know, this was sent to the Shah and, and it was stamped that he had read it, you know. So it was down to that kind of level. On, in other areas, more technical areas, so especially in economic policy, the Shah was less of a micromanager, partly because he just didn't understand those things very well, but partly because they were incredibly complex and, and required technocrats in order to be able to manage them. So the technocrats in the Shah's regime actually had a considerable amount of power and influence, um, particularly in the area of economic decision-making. And were these technocrats brought in from Iranian intellectual society or were they, was he more like the Pinochet regime bringing in American technocrats to run the economy? No, they were, they were Iranian. They were mostly um, uh, American and European educated um, middle class Iranians, um, uh, highly educated people who some of them had even been opponents of the Shah, you know, in their student days. Um, had, you know, when they were studying overseas, had been part of opposition groups or student movements that criticized the Shah. But a lot of them, uh, well, you know, they were very patriotic people and they shared the Shah's vision of modernizing Iran um, and also had, you know, shared in the idea of uh, Iran being a serious country, a sort of serious power in the global scene. But, it, but, they, but they were often... Um, deeply disillusioned with the levels of corruption in the Shah's Iran and deep and often very unhappy about the lack of political freedom and the lack of democracy. Um, so there was always a kind of, with many of them, there was often a tension between the Shah and these technocrats and some of them, but particularly the ones who rose very high, um, uh, 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 some, for example, Mehdi Samii, who became uh, governor of the central bank at one point um, was in charge of the plan and budget organization. They would even at times try to steer him or advise him towards some kind of political reform. Um, and often those who amongst them who were the most outspoken. So one of the very early and very important technocrats, Epta Hodge, um, who really was the kind of founding figure for a, for a lot of economic decision-making in Iran, they, a lot of them fell out with the Shah at some point, you know, when they, when they were too critical of wasteful spending or, um, you know, too much money being lavished on the armed forces or, you know, they, they would often fall out and then, and then usually end up 
with some sinecure somewhere else or end up in exile somewhere. Um, so yeah, there was this kind of tension. There was, I think a lot of the time this tension, um, particularly in the area of uh, economic decision-making, particularly after the massive increase in oil prices in 1973 and the decisions that had to be made with, you know, what, what, what's Iran going to do with this huge surplus of money? So before we move on to talk about what it's like doing research on Iran, I don't think we can mention and discuss the Shah's regime without at least touching on Savak and the extremely repressive state security services that the Shah ran for 22 years and in part led to the collapse of the regime because of people's hatred of the internal security services that were there and the huge levels of state repression and torture, disappearings of people and things like this that Savak perpetrated upon the public. So could you describe Savak as a regime, how it changed over its 22 years, how much power and influence did it have within the Iranian regime to sort of set policy and to act independently? And then finally, you brought up this idea of Jimmy Carter and a human rights revolution towards the end of the 70s, and how did that influence Savak's operations inside of Iran? Yeah, it's, Savak is a, believe it or not, we don't have a single history of Savak. Nobody has written a sort of, there's not one book that sort of tries to map the history of Savak, which would be fascinating. Um, we have various sort of bits and pieces of the story. Um, so Savak is created in the late 1950s with the help of the Americans um, as Iran's first sort of um, dedicated uh, intelligence and security agency, and it combines the functions of both domestic and foreign intelligence. So, whereas in most countries, those functions are split between two different organizations in Iran, it's one organization. Um, and there had been sort of police and security agencies before, but Savak is the first one really to have modern intelligence uh, uh, techniques and um, and to be sort of professionally trained in, 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 in the sort of intelligence world. Um, it, it, in the late 50s and, uh, you know, particularly in the period after the coup in 1953, um, uh, it, it has a very brutal reputation in that early period when it was led by General Taimur Bakhtiar. Um, it was essentially hunting down and cracking down on all the opponents of the Shah's regime, particularly the left, particularly communists, members of the Tudeh party. Um, then it, in the sort of early 1960s, it goes through a slightly different period. There's a slight change in its behavior when it's led by General Pakravan, who was a much more cultivated, less brutal, um, type of person. So, for example, in that period when Ayatollah Khomeini is, is, comes to national prominence and is arrested for his opposition to the White Revolution, you know, Khomeini is treated really with kid gloves compared to other opponents uh, of the regime. And uh, he is exiled to Turkey. Um, he's not executed. Pakravan essentially advises the Shah against executing him. Um, he goes to Turkey and then um, eventually to, uh, to Iraq. But then once Pakravan is removed and General Nasiri becomes the head of Savak, it's like, it, Savak really returns to its very, very brutal um, methods of its, of its early years. 
Um, and that also maps onto the growth of a militant armed opposition to the Shah um, in the 1970s, beginning with the famous Siakal incident in 1971, the first armed attack on the Iranian government by one of these guerrilla groups. That really changed, that also really terrifies the Shah's regime um, and uh, is met with absolutely brutal force um, by the Savak. Uh, so the use of torture in prisons, I think, dramatically escalates, uh, particularly when they're dealing with people they suspect to be members of these um, guerrilla groups, these underground guerrilla groups. Um, and so really it's a cycle of violence. Um, the oppression of the Shah's regime radicalizes the opposition who become more and more militant and, and less and less inclined to uh, believe in the utility of any kind of non-violent or democratic politics. So, and then in, in, as they're carrying out more and more um, militant actions, the Shah's regime becomes more and more violent in the way that it deals with them. So the number of executions increases, the use of torture increases. And the, the, that period of the sort of early, you know, through to between 1971 and 1976 is the really dark period um, of, of Savak's history. Um, uh, and there are all kinds of absolutely horrific stories of what goes on in the torture chambers of, of various, of the Komite prison, particularly in Tehran, which was the Rahman prison where these people were taken to get confessions out of them. Um, but it all dramatically changes, as I mentioned, in 1976, where under pressure from human rights activists, groups like Amnesty International, the International Commission for Jurists, um, uh, and pressure from um, the US Congress and from eventually from Jimmy Carter as well, um, suddenly the Shah orders an end to all physical torture in Iranian prisons. Um, he allows the ICRC to come and inspect the prisons. Uh, Amnesty begins a dialogue with Iran, the ICJ begins a dialogue with the Iranians, there are reforms to the penal code. So it's a it's a very dramatic sort of turn. Um, but as you can imagine, it has very little credibility with the Shah's opponents, you know, who A, are, are, are very skeptical of the idea that there is any serious kind of liberalization taking place, they, that this is all just window dressing designed to impress um, foreign critics. Um, uh, but also very little faith that once the Shah reestablishes control or gains whatever political gains he wants from this process, you know, that, that, that these kind of reforms will continue and they won't just revert back immediately to what was happening before. So, um, yeah, the, the level of absolute mistrust between the regime and the people by the time you get to the end of the 1970s, that gap is enormous. And a lot of that, as you say, is fueled by the role of Savak, the sort of sinister, notorious role um, that Savak had domestically. What's often not talked about and not mentioned, and most people don't know about actually, is, is Savak's um, other roles. Uh, so for example, it's foreign intelligence gathering roles, it's counterintelligence role. I mean, the, um, the, the Soviets, Soviet the KGB, um, had a lot of had a huge presence in Iran and was carrying out all kinds of active measures against Iran. Um, 
the Savak uncovered a, a, a spy in the Iranian military, KGB spy in the Iranian military, General Mogharabi in 1978. Um, so, uh, it was carrying out normal, you know, the normal functions of any intelligence service as well. Um, but what it is m known for more than anything is its role in this kind of brutal domestic suppression. I want to just quickly cover those two turning points again before we move on to talk about research. So this, the the seventy one incident, which causes the crackdown and repression is also the period under which Savak receives m most of its training internationally in how to conduct things like torture and the extraction of confessions and things like this, which then help fuel the terror that they're able to commit. So how is it integrated into other security services in order to learn these techniques? And then secondly, when the turn occurs towards liberalization, how does institutional leaders within Savak respond to this because often we see in states that have these incredibly repressive security services that when the when the government attempts to then rein them in they're at risk themselves of being attacked by their own security services so how does Savak deal with the attempt to turn to liberalization or is the ideology of Savak so tied to the Shah's regime that they effectively accept it? Um, it's true that Savak uh, received a lot of uh, cooperation and training from other intelligence services. So um, in, in many different ways. I mean, Savak was part of a uh, alliance between Israel, Turkey, and Iran called the Trident Organization, um, beginning in the late 50s and um, through um, really till the end of the Shah's regime, which really involved in, in intelligence sharing and information sharing, um, uh, re largely revolving around the common threat of Arab nationalism, um, uh, uh, but also the Soviet, Soviet concern, Soviet threat and so on. Um, Savak officers tended to be, particularly in the early years, they were mostly Mil former military officers who, who were then um, joined Savak or recruited into Savak, they weren't, how can I put it, the most terribly sophisticated or, you know, they weren't the cream of the crop, really. It, it changes over time. You begin to get, I think, in the 60s and some more and more civilians going into Savak and more and more better educated people going into Savak. So, for example, somebody like um, Ali Nagy Ali Khani, who um, was an ec ec economic analyst who worked for Savak um, and actually ended up as a minister and eventually in the, in the Shah's government, very competent you know, minister. Um, so there's all different kinds of, there's a kind of evolution. The training that they're receiving in the, in the, from the Americans, from the British, from the Israelis, from others, uh, I've never seen any evidence that it was sort of, you know, training them how to torture people. I don't think they needed really any training in how to torture people. Their, their methods were not very sophisticated. They were fairly brutal. Um, and torture really was nothing new. It certainly existed in the Iranian sort of security services prior to the creation of Savak. So I don't, I think the training mostly revolved around spycraft you know things like how to conduct surveillance or um how to compartmentalize information or 
um, you know, the, the sort of nuts and bolts of intelligence work. Um, uh, so, but I, I, but I can't say for sure because obviously we don't have access to um, those kinds of um, records, but at least the oral histories that we have and the memoirs and so on seem to indicate that they mostly revolve around sort of, in a way, the opposite, trying to sort of professionalize them, you know, in, in, into an actual proper intelligence service rather than, you know, the thugs of the regime. Um, uh, uh, and and there were some really sinister people and in parts of Savak, you know, the, the people that we know about who actually were the interrogators, um, you know, seemed like quite sadistic people in, 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 in many ways. Um, but the more senior ranks tended to, to be far more sophisticated people. So someone like Pavis Sabeti, who was a, a very famous, he was the head of the third directorate, which was in charge of domestic security in Iran actually became a public figure when he actually appeared in a number of televised press conferences in the 1970s describing various conspiracies that Savak had uncovered. You know, he was a very polished, um, sophisticated, worldly person, you know, far from the figure of the kind of typical thug of, um, that, that you would associate with, with um, Savak. Uh, and uh, yeah, so in their reaction to the liberalization was very negative. I mean, you know, they were absolutely horrified by this policy of liberalization. Um, Sabeti, who's still alive and living in the, in the US, I think in Florida in exile, um, has written a memoir uh, uh, and he makes it clear that, you know, he was absolutely opposed to this idea of liberalization and thought it was very dangerous and um, and you know, to the extent that we can believe what he says in his in his um, memoirs, I think that's that's that sounds right to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that they would be absolutely horrified by the idea of releasing political prisoners and allowing more dissent, because they understood that. I think I think they understood better than the Shah that this would not be seen. This wouldn't this wouldn't be met with any kind of positive response from the opposition, but rather it would be seen as weakness. It would be seen as the as the Shah making concessions under pressure from uh, foreign power, from the United States, from these human rights activists, um, and that would actually encourage the opposition. That would embolden the opposition, which is exactly what it did. Um, so I think they understood they they had a much more cynical view of the relationship between the Shah and the people than the Shah himself did. Uh, who really, I mean, and I know it's, it, it's difficult for many people to believe, but I really do think that he did not imagine that the people saw him as this brutal, you know, corrupt dictator. I think he really genuinely believed, as delusional as it sounds, that he was seen as the sort of father of the nation and, um, and even at the height of the revolution, when the protests are on the streets, he's there's many, many sources that show that he's deeply, deeply reluctant to use force to suppress the revolution because he says over and over and over again, you know, I am not a Pinochet, you know, and, and that a king cannot kill his own people. And um, uh, not because I think he was, you know, particularly squeamish about you know, using force, because he certainly had many, many times, he executed many people, um, but rather because using force in that way meant sort of admitting that the propaganda wasn't, was all wrong, you know, that the emperor had no clothes. 
And, and he, I don't think he could really bring himself to do that. He had to hold on to this fiction um, that, you know, the, 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 the monarchy um, was absolutely essential to Iranian identity um, and, and to Iranian life and that Iranians couldn't imagine a, a, a world without him. So I think that's a perfect segue to move into the last part of our discussion about how you do your research and why you chose this subject area. So why why did you choose specifically the monarchy era of Iranian history as your area of primary study? Oh, it's a good question. I've asked myself that question many times. Um, I, it was a kind of just uh, partly was that it was a personal. <clears throat> I think like all of us, we we have a sort of personal you know connection to something. Which and being Iranian myself and um, having uh, left Iran with my family as a result of the Iranian Revolution, I think it was a kind of desire to try to understand what had happened to my parents' generation and what had happened in in an Iran that I had never lived through or never knew directly but it sort of just heard about um at the kitchen table um so it was partly that um it was also that when i when i was a student when i was working uh on my masters and my and my dfil at oxford it was a time when all of these documents from the 70s these american documents had, had been declassified um and nobody had sort of worked on 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 them and i was interested in iran and here was this fantastic set of documents from the Nixon administration. And here were these fantastic characters, you know, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger and the Shah. I mean, I just found them um, really interesting and fascinating and deeply flawed, deeply um, contradictory people. But, you know, the, the stuff that you would just come across as you read these documents, you know, was stranger than fiction. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's what kind of got me hooked. Um, and as I went deeper and deeper into the material, I just realized there's so much, this is such a formative period for Iran. So much, if you really want to understand contemporary Iran, so much of it is a product of the seventies um, and nobody had really worked on it. It was, it was, you know, a blank slate really in terms of the historiography, which was great in a way because you could, you know, as a scholar, you could sort of go in any any direction you want, really. But it, it also has its downside because, of course, this is very recent history. It's deeply evocative and emotional for people. It's it's live. It's history that's still alive. Um, so uh, that poses its own challenges, you know, and problems. But um, but you know, back then, you know, when I started work on this. Uh, it was really, I was really sort of, maybe there was a handful of people in the world that were even remotely interested in this. And we'd sort of all see each other at the same conferences every year. Um, but now, I mean, it's fantastic because I go, now when I go to these conferences, I see more and more and more and more sort of PhD projects looking at all aspects of this history that, you know, goes far beyond what I've done, you know. Um, and I love that. It's really fascinating. And how do you go about getting sources in order to study the era? Do you just use American archives? Are there access to archives in Iran? Do you speak to people in Iran or is it mostly expatriates who left after the Shah's regime? How does that work? Yeah, it's the biggest problem, of course, we have is the lack of access to archives in Iran because of the political conditions in Iran, the sensitivity of this subject. 
um, and just the nature of archives in Iran, it's very, very difficult to get access to those archives. Some Iranian scholars who are sort of accepted, acceptable uh, according to the Islamic Republic, you know, do get privileged access to these archives. Um, and one day I hope, you know, we'll all be able to access them and there's a gold mine of sort of material there. The material that most of us work with are, um, yes, the state archives, the British archives, the American archives, European archives, a, a, way, a whole host of material that's become available in recent years in the archives of the former Soviet Union and the former socialist bloc. Um, so just for example, I, I've found loads of material uh, from the Stasi archives in Berlin on the Iranian Communist Party, the Tude, which was based in Leipzig, you know, during most of the 60s and 70s. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of material, but also as the kind of historiography is moving beyond just diplomatic history um, into the study of sort of transnational history, um, so, social movements, the Iranian opposition groups. Um, there are many, many, many archives dotted around the world of collections, papers, um, oral histories um, that you can use to do this kind of research. Um, there's a, a wonderful uh, collection at the Hoover Institute at Stanford um, there is another really big collection at the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam, lots of material on, on Iran there, um, and, and then just various sort of private papers and things all dotted around the world. It, it's not the easiest research to do. You have to have the language skills and you, you need the money to be able to travel to all these places, so it's not cheap, um, which is a big barrier, um, but, uh, but it is doable. You don't necessarily have to be able to go to Iran um, in order to find Iranian sources, Persian language sources. There's a huge amount of it available outside of Iran. And as I understand it, the current Iranian government is trying to release parts of the archives of, of Savak and of the Shah's regime. And how do we handle histories that will be generated from those archives, given that a regime that is now opposed to the historic regime have control over what sources are released, what files are released. How do we pass that and deal with that as an issue? Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. Uh, you're right. There, um, Iran's Ministry of Intelligence um, has, a, has a unit that basically trawls through the archive of Savak, which is under their control, um, and uh, selectively publishes volumes of documents on various topics, um, sometimes including actual um, photographs of the documents themselves, but sometimes just sort of transcripts of the documents. Um, so yes, obviously we don't know uh, how accurate these are, whether they've been edited or not. Sometimes it's very clear that they've been changed. Um, we don't know how selective the choice of these documents is, you know, so they're often trying to present a certain narrative of a particular historical figure or a particular historical event. So they are troublesome. Um, but, you know, any archive has methodological issues associated with it, any archive, you, know, you can't take any source or any archive just at face value 
Um, and and this one, uh, you know, is perhaps just more obvious what the, what the issues are. Um, but I but we I certainly don't think they should be ignored. I mean, they can be very very useful, particularly if you can corroborate those sources with other sources. You know, uh, so um, I've seen them used in lots of really fantastic work. Uh, for example, on the opposition to the Shah, various opposition groups. There's a wonderful new book that just came out by um, Ali Rahnema on the on the Fadayon Echalk, the, the Marxist-Leninist Fadayon guerrilla group, um, where he makes quite good use of these documents. Um, but you know, but they really you really have to be very careful with how you use them. And I think you really have to I, I would be skeptical of arguments that base their sort of claims solely on those um, sources. I think you do need to try to cross-reference them as best you can with other with other sources. That turns us nicely to what are some of the other scholars and other works that we should be reading if we want to know more about Iranian history other than your two excellent books? Um, there's many. Um, you, you've really spoilt the choice. Um, I, I, I think always a good place to start um, for people who maybe are new um, to the subject of Pahlavi history um, is the works of Abbas Milani at Stanford who writes you know, very entertaining sort of, and um, very readable accounts. He, his biography of the Shah, and, but particularly his book, The Persian Sphinx, which is a biography of Amir Abbas Hoveida, who was the Shah's prime minister for uh, 12, 13 years. It's a wonderful book. Um, but then you can you know, delve into, there, there are so many intellectual histories um, uh, of, of Iran. Uh, in that period written, Ali Mir Sepasi has a wonderful series of books on um, the intellectual history of Iran in the 60s and 70s. Um, there's uh, all different aspects of the history um, are being um, covered now. Um, there's a, 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 a fantastic um, a variety of, of works that have been written about the 1953 coup um, a wonderful edited volume by Malcolm Byrne and Mark Gazirowski. Um, there are, um, Ali Rahnema has written fantastic biographies of Ali Shariati, one of the great sort of, one of the towering figures of um, Islamism in Iran in the 1970s. Um, so, I mean, there's just so much um, to read, but I think we are, what we, what we need really, what we desperately need and what we're lacking is sort of um, really basic sort of political histories or histories of institutions. You know, we don't have a history of the Iranian oil industry. Um, we don't have, uh, uh, we don't have biographies of most of the major figures. We don't, you know, so a lot of the historiography and what is being written is shaped by trends and fashions in American and, and European universities, you know, um, driven by, by issues in other fields, which is fine. And I don't, that's wonderful. And there's lots of rich new work um, coming up, but the problem is the sort of basic building blocks of history in some ways where we're lacking, you know, really just basic empirical data that a lot of people just um, don't have. So I think that work is, is slowly coming. Um, uh, people like Robert Steele, for example, who's a young scholar out of Exeter, 
Um, and then UCLA, who's written a wonderful book about the Shah's Persepolis celebrations, you know, just solid empirical um, political history um, is, is, is really what we need. And, and I think it's going to be written really by the next generation um, doing really, really sort of creative uh, archival work in all kinds of places, you know, to try to piece together these um, stories. Um, um, we have one of our own PhD students at LSE, for example, Maral Shamshiri Fad, who's writing at the moment a fantastic history of the Iranian intervention in Oman in the 1970s, you know, using a huge variety of sources um, all over the world to try to piece together this incredible story. Um, or Bill Figuera, at Penn, who just finished his PhD on Iran and China and Iranian Maoism, you know. So all of this stuff is coming, um, but it's really hard work. It's really, there's a lot of labor involved because the, the documents, the sources are in multiple languages. They're all over the world. Um, and it's gonna take a really big commitment for someone to, to, to kind of dive in and write this kind of history. To conclude then, what would you say has been the major change in our perception of the era over the last 10 years and what is maybe different from the way that we lay understand the Shah's regime that you would want people to take away in terms of what is this core understanding that, that we should take on board that is different to maybe what we've picked up through popular culture? Um, I... Th I, I, I think that the lesson, there are different lessons here for different audiences, you know, and I think um, uh, I, I tend to write primarily for an Iranian audience. They're the, really the one I have in mind, even though that's, that's not really my professional audience, but really in my heart, that's, that's who I'm writing for. And I think for, uh, there is a very, it's very important for Iranians to be able to come to terms with this history um, it's a very painful history for many, for different reasons, either because they were opponents of the Shah's regime or they, or their lives were completely upended by the revolution that, that came as a result of it. Um, so I think coming to terms with this past and accepting a more nuanced version of that history than the one that we're all familiar with, and particularly the one that is propounded by the state in Iran as a kind of official history, I think is very important. Understanding the failures of the Shah's regime is crucial, particularly um, the democratic sort of deficit of the Shah's regime and, and, and the reasons for the Iranian revolution, but also understanding that that period is not just a period of unending failures, that the 1960s and 1970s were in many ways the uh, foundational period um, where modern Iran was forged, that the Iran that, we're, that people are living in today, that, that we're experiencing today is very much product physically, ideationally, um, uh, institutionally of that era um, and that we, we need to understand it and we need to come to terms with it. This has been a really insightful learning experience in terms of finding out a little bit more about the history of Iran. So thank you for joining us today. And are there any projects that you're working on that you want to tell people about 
um, things you want to put out there before we sign off? Um, it's been my pleasure. I'm working right now on a history of uh, human rights and the Iranian revolution. So I'm interested in the ways that um, the human rights revolution of the 1970s uh, coincided with um, and impacted the opposition to the Shah. Uh, really trying to understand why a regime like the Shah's, which was at the peak of its power in the 1970s, um, why it would uh, embark on a process of liberalization that eventually led to its downfall. Um, so that's the, that's the project I'm working on now. It's a, it's a different kind of work to the one I've done before, focusing on sort of diplomacy um, and politics, it's more a sort of history of social movements and, and transnational history of um, activism. Um, but I'm really absolutely loving and enjoying it. If anyone's interested, um, uh, there is a, a video on uh, YouTube of a lecture I gave at Stanford about the project back in 2014, and they can uh, uh, watch that. Um, and if anyone is interested in learning more about this history or is working on any aspect of this history, please get in touch with me. I love hearing from people who have a passion and an interest in um, Pahlavi studies. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rohan. You've been listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. You can follow me on Twitter at jrbm underscore irtheory. Be sure to follow the podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube and the LSEI player. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Like, share the podcast and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode. Again, I'm Jack Barsumelish and this has been the LSE Cold War Podcast. <laughs>